Hello, it's my great pleasure today to introduce um, our co-host of this podcast, Ashley Maxey. Um, you're really in for a treat today. Ashley has had a variety of different types of jobs. She's gotten a job at a small liberal arts school and gotten tenure there. She's taught at a historically black college and university. She's been at one of the largest universities in the in the world, uh, Ohio State University, and she's taught at small elite private institutions like Vanderbilt. So she's got a diversity of experience. Um, uh, Ashley's a, an incredible person. She's an associate editor at uh, Attention Perception uh, and Psychophysics. She runs a lab with 15 undergraduates and no grad students or postdocs. So she really provides a model of how you can do great science um, with just young people in your lab. Um, she's also an incredible mom and a beautiful woman. So um, I hope you're looking forward to this interview with Ashley. At one point, she gets a little choked up talking about how um, sh how it makes her feel when she helps her students. See if you can hear the tears in her voice. Hello, and welcome to another Brain Bios. I'm your host today, Jeff Woodman, and we are all extremely lucky <laughs> to have as our guest today uh, someone who's also known as the host of Brain Bios, Ashley Maxey. <laughs> um, Ashley is a visiting associate professor uh, in the psychology department at Ohio State University um, in Columbus, Ohio. Um, in the interest of not having a conflict of interest, she's also my wife and the co-author of From Start to Finish. So uh, when we're referring to the book, that's what we're referring to. So as you already know, the format we like to follow now in our second podcast is um, one in which we hear a little bit about where Ashley's from, and then she tells us um, about a, a burning issue that she has related to training scientists and the craft of brain and behavioral science. So, Ashley, would you like to tell us about yourself? Where are you from? Um, I'm originally from the Chicago area. I grew up in Wilmette, Illinois, which is north of Chicago. I went to Purdue for my undergrad years. I had a lot of fantastic professors at Purdue. I bumbled around trying to figure out what I was going to major in. I started in business because my dad made me. Then I thought about being a German major and an English major and ultimately had a intro to psych professor who was so passionate and engaging that it really caused me to fall in love with psychology as well. Do you want to call that person out? Um, his name, <laughs> I don't know. Do I? Do you remember? I do remember. Uh, his name is Bob Malera. Ah, that's great. And what, after that, I was majoring in psych. I was working in his lab. I was an undergrad TA for him. I became like a major groupie. Oh, nice. I also thought that I might want to pursue graduate school in sociology because I felt really passionate about gay rights, actually. Uh-huh. So I did an honors research project in the psychology department on attention and ERPs and in the sociology department on adoption by same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. And that experience helped me figure out that I really preferred the research methods of psychology. Yeah. So I applied to some PhD programs. I'm blanking on if it's seven or eight. Seven or eight PhD programs huh. in psychology. And I was accepted to three of them. Ah. That's that's a good number. It's not like one over Jeff, right. which would be one hundred percent. Right. Yeah, but, I bring that up just yeah. to try to make you feel bad. That's, you did actually. well. Actually, you did well. <laughs> and I was really lucky to end up going to the University of Iowa, a program you are familiar with. Yeah, great folks. 
and I worked with Andrew Hollingworth primarily, also a little bit of Steve Luck and Sean Vicera. Right. I worked with Sean as well. And yeah. Steve. And Steve. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that's great. So you got training from multiple perspectives, even in grad school. So that must have been an advantage. Yeah, it was helpful. I did some things that you should not do during graduate school. Primarily leave. I primarily left, and I don't recommend that. So I was ABD, and I had some... Wait, what does that mean? ABD stands for All But Dissertation. Ah. And I was independently funded at that point in time, and I had some personal life issues that caused me to move to Ohio Uh while I was wrapping up my dissertation. And I know I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but I think that one of the main pieces of advice that I have for people who are in graduate school or training in general is that it's so important to use those years to develop your independence. So to take really seriously learning how to program, take really seriously learning how to analyze data, write up your results. It's really tempting to lean on other people, whether they're senior graduate students in the lab or your advisor. But what you realize is that eventually you're on your own. And then if you didn't do that, you are starting at square one. Yeah, I I love that because I always... That, that scares me too for my trainees as well and was scary myself, the idea that, well, you know, even your first year in graduate school, you are potentially four to five years from running your own show. Right. Yeah. Right. So I moved to Ohio and wrapped up my dissertation. I really lost some time there, just not being in the lab, not being able to go to lab meetings, not being able to go to brown bags. There was really a deficit in leaving the scientific community. I think that, you know, I have a couple of friends who have thought about moving and working remotely, and I always just sort of bristle at that because I know that you don't recognize the advantage that you're getting from being in the department and attending talks, but it's a pretty big advantage. So when I was in Ohio, I felt as though, you know, I was going to, I was about to go on the job market. So I just emailed the local schools and tried to see if anybody needed any classes taught because I really wasn't sure what kind of career I was going to go for. If I liked teaching, I didn't have any experience teaching and luckily, you didn't teach at all at, at, in grad school? Well, no, that's not true. I TA'd and I also co-taught a summer course, mm-hmm. but it it didn't feel like I was independent. Right. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't enough independence for me to have any idea if I really liked doing it or not. Right. And in fact, I co-taught with someone who was fantastic and knew that they wanted to be a teaching professor. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of just like let them have control of everything and follow their lead. And that was another mistake that I made in terms of not sort of demanding enough independence that I could navigate the waters by myself and figure out how how to do it. And if I liked it. Yeah. Well, but it worked out for you. So you, so you, you're, emailing local schools? Yes. So I emailed a bunch of schools around Columbus, Ohio, where I was living. And Ohio State Marion is a regional campus for Ohio State. And they responded and said that they really needed someone to teach sensation and perception. I think at the time it was called perception. So I got a job teaching one class there, and then it turned into two classes, and then it turned into a full-time gig. So I was a lecturer because that is the level that you can get appointed when you don't yet have your PhD. And then I got my PhD and then I was a visiting assistant professor there for a year. I went on the job market to apply for tenure track jobs and I got one at a small liberal arts school in Indiana called Manchester. And were you applying uh, exclusively to small liberal arts schools? Did you... 
No, in fact, I didn't really know what liberal arts meant. I had only been at Big Ten schools, so Purdue and Iowa, and mm-hmm. then Ohio State. Right. And I, again, had really no idea if I would enjoy this or not. But at that point in time, I wanted a tenure track job. And the there were not many in the country that I fit the job description for. There were just not a lot of jobs in general. And right. then there were even less for cognitive psychology. Right. So I and- did get at least phone interviews for all the schools that I applied to, which is great. Right. What year was this? Do you remember? Um, 2000, was it 2010, okay. 2009, somewhere around there. So during the deep, darkest part of the recession in which no one was hiring, you were looking for a job. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and somewhat successfully. Yeah. So I did get inter- so phone interviews everywhere that I had applied. So uh, I had an interview at a liberal arts school that shall go unnamed that was very uncomfortable. And it was very clear to me that I didn't fit in there and I didn't want to go there. Okay. So I had my fingers crossed that something else would work out. And then I interviewed at Manchester and I just felt like home. And I really loved the other, the other faculty members. I got along well with the students I just left really hoping that they would make me a job offer. And, you know, that is such a good piece of advice, too, about visiting places and about how the interview is just as much for you as it is for them in terms of, you know, this is true if you're interviewing for graduate school, too, right, which is, does this place feel comfortable? Would you be honored to be there? Would you like to live there? All of that kind of stuff. Right. Now, what what do you what was it about North Manchester that really made it resonate with you? Do you think? You know, it was partly where I was in my life. So at the time, I was a single mom, and I had two young kids, and it had a real community atmosphere. They were really supportive and kind and open with me, and I just felt like. This was a place where I could grow into the kind of professor that I wanted to be. You know, I was right. still navigating how how I would be an independent research scientist and what kind of professor I would be and how I would manage the classroom. And sure. it just felt like I was going to get to grow there. Right. And for people who don't know the nature of a small liberal arts school, Approximately how many students, how many uh, colleagues maybe in your department, just to give kind of a sketch of like size. So Manchester is quite small. I think that there's probably 1,200 students, undergrads there. The psych department was actually just two other people and me for a little while. So now it has four people or it grew to four while I was there. And the other two people were actually married to each other. And so... I think that in most circumstances that would feel awkward and as if you're the third wheel, but they were just fantastic and it just worked really well. Great. So if I'm correct, you started your own major when you were there. How, How did you do that? Is it hard for someone, for all the rest of us who haven't started our own major? Um, I think it depends on the environment. So when I was there, I started a major in cognitive neuroscience. And that was coming out of a real need in the field and the increasing interest in neuroscience. And the ins and outs of starting the major were relatively easy because of the environment. So the registrar was very useful in terms of answering questions. My department was wildly supportive. The one thing that was surprising to me that you wouldn't know if you weren't at a liberal arts school was that faculty meetings were the entire faculty. So people who taught all across, you know, biology professors, physics professors, art professors, all of them. And they voted on whether or not we would have this new major. And so I had to go in front of people who knew nothing about psychology or cognitive neuroscience and justify the need for this new major, which, again, it was a really supportive environment. So it was it went pretty smoothly. 
but uh, I was surprised that people who were not psychologists had any say in what I was going to do in my program. And that seems to just be the nature of the liberal arts environment. Sure. Well, that's cool. So um, you're at, you're in North Manchester, you're running a lab also? Yeah. So I also, you know, along with my theme here of talking about establishing independence, I, when I was at Ohio State, I was so overwhelmed with teaching and juggling young kids and trying to apply for tenure track jobs that I didn't do much in terms of setting up a lab. I started to, but it just, I didn't have a lot of time to spend on it. So at Manchester, I set up my own lab for the first time and I realized how little I knew. I realized how much I had really relied on my advisors and collaborators in Iowa. So I did a couple of things to try to or to establish independence. And one of them was that I went to a programming conference to sort of perfect. I mean, I I wouldn't say to learn how to program because I did know how to program, but I was worried about getting my, you know, standing on my own. And so I had to do a lot of extra things that would have been much easier if I had sort of been more, demanded more of myself in graduate school. Okay. So I did set up my own lab at Manchester and that did go really well. I really learned how to run a lab with undergrads. I became a very big supporter of the fact that you can continue to publish and you can be active in your field. You can review papers, you can go to conferences and only have a lab run with undergrads. So ultimately it was a lot of hard work and I don't, I didn't know that it was going to end up well and probably from the outside it did not look like it was going (laughs) to go well, Uh, but it did in the end. Yeah. That's great. So, I, if I recall, you get your department at at uh, Manchester University was had a great record of getting, of helping your students who wanted to go to grad school get in. Yeah, we most years I believe had a hundred percent acceptance rate. It, I don't think it was ever below ninety percent. So, what that means is that of the people who applied to graduate school, that's the proportion of people that got in to at least one program. So we did a lot of things to revamp the curriculum to get people more research experience. We created a sequence of courses where they would do stats and research and then work in someone's lab. So we were really committed to, or or we took really seriously the charge of helping our students get to the next place. And that has really helped me develop my teaching philosophy of ensuring that I'm not that focused I'm not overly focused on the class that I'm teaching and I'm more aware of how this class fits into a bigger goal for my students. And I think that informs how I teach in the classroom, how I mentor in my lab, how I advise students. It was a really great atmosphere where because it was a small school and I really got to know my students, I really cared a lot about them and I really wanted them to get to the next step and that helped me spend a lot of time contemplating whether everything that I was doing was appropriate to get them to the next step. And where it wasn't, I had the opportunity to realign my perspective and my actions. Right. You know, also in the interest of disclosure, we met, well, we started hanging out when you were a professor at North Manchester. So I got to, got to, uh, Meet the town. (laughs) (laughs) And I think for some people who are graduate students or postdocs and thinking about whether, well, do I want to, am I, do I want to live in a small town with a a little university? Um, What are, when you said it was like a perfect place for you, really special, what is it do you think that's, that makes kind of a small town experience pretty special? Because you come from one of the 25 largest cities in the world. So did, were you worried about living in a small community like that or? You know, I think that a lot of it depends just on where you are in life and what you're looking for out of your personal life. So 
at that point in time, both of my parents had passed away and I think I really wanted a community pretty badly. And North Manchester, Indiana is a place that really opens their arms to anyone. And so I loved it. I feel like I slid right into it in a really comfortable way. I can understand how if you're single and you don't have any kids and you're looking for, you know, an exciting nightlife, I can understand how North Manchester might not be the place for you. But it was also, it is also about 45 minutes from Fort Wayne, which is a relatively large city. And you could live there and you could commute. So I guess I would also say, look at the big picture when you're looking at these types of jobs. Because there are people who lived in Fort Wayne and worked at Manchester. I'm glad that I didn't because I lived two blocks from campus. I got to walk to campus. My kids learned how to ride their bikes around the mall. We had a really great time. But I, I get that a lot of it depends on, you know, it's sort of a perfect storm in a good way right. for me to fit in there. Yeah. Well, you know, the... Uh those small towns can be pretty special. It's a special to small town, but there's a lot of those really like little jewels out there that have a, a, a liberal arts school parked in them. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm about to cover the phase of my career where I was moving because I wanted to be in a certain place. But I do generally really bristle when people are doing a geographically targeted job search. And I don't think it's a good idea to judge whether or not you're going to be happy based on the location. And I think part of that is primarily because you don't, you don't really know until you get there. And I think that um, you have a lot of options about where you live or where you send your kids to school or all of that. And I just think you should keep an open mind. Right. Well, I know you have excellent tips for getting a job like that at a small liberal arts school in our book. So maybe we move on and where'd you go next? So I was at Manchester for five years. I got tenure there, but in the meantime, you and I had gotten married oh, and no. <laughs> we were getting a little impatient at not living in the same town. So we looked at job openings in Nashville and which is where you were, are, you are. And Tennessee State was hiring, so I applied for a job at Tennessee State, which is located in Nashville, and I got that job. So it was with a bit of a heavy heart that I moved away from Manchester and came to Nashville uh, as an associate professor at Tennessee State. Right. Great. Well, it was a unique experience, though, as well. Yeah, Tennessee State is a historically black college, so the lingo is HBCU, which stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities, and I learned so much about uh, black America, and I learned a lot about why there are HBCUs and the need for historically black colleges, and I have a lot of respect for people who work at them and TSU and the students there also really impacted me and also have a special place in my heart. But ultimately, that was not the ideal environment for me. So after spending a year there as an associate professor, I again just called Ohio State and asked for a job again. Right. And just... So we're all clear on this. This isn't usually how you get a job. No, it's usually not. Usually they don't just say, Is, are there any jobs there? And they say, yeah, there's one over here. Right. I don't advise that. That's right. not a good idea. So uh, I had a couple of things going on in my personal life, one of which was that I suffered a spinal cord injury and was paralyzed. So I uh, was sort of desperate, uh, and I took a lecture position at Ohio State, which in some ways was a huge blow to my ego because I had been a lecturer at Ohio State however many years before, right. seven years before, and I got that job without even having my PhD. And here I was having gotten tenure at Manchester, having been an associate professor at TSU, and that felt in some ways like a step down. However, 
it has also been fantastic for me. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are advantages to these non-tenure track positions, which I also discuss in the book. So I don't want to reiterate all of those points here, but uh, I was a lecturer at Ohio State for a year, and then I was appointed a lecturer because I just called and asked for a job over the summer, and that's all that they could do in a month. And classes started, and I still didn't have an ID or an email address or anything. It was chaos. That's how sort of quickly this all fell into place. Right. And then uh, they gave me lab space and took really good care of me and then uh, promoted me to visiting associate professor. And I'm going to be going into my second year at that appointment. Great. Great. So so you've been at a place with... uh you know, 1,200 students in the whole university and then 1,200 in a class. <laughs> not 1,200, not my classes, but I get your point. One of the largest schools in the country. Right, right. Well, that's, you've, that's cool. Uh, I think your story provides an excellent example of, uh, of uh, a path in which it takes turns and each one seems to be a victory, even though it seems impossible for them to all work out. Yeah, I a couple of years ago I gave a talk at Vanderbilt about how to get a job at a, a liberal arts school, and after the talk, one of the postdocs in the audience came up to me and said, "I really value your explanation that the first job I get doesn't have to be my forever job or my dream job." And I think that there is just this real misconception that. Because we have tenure, because we have this thing called tenure, right. we have forever jobs. Right. And therefore, all jobs are forever jobs. Right. <laughs> you, right. You get one and you get tenure and you stay there for a million years. Right. Yeah. And so you, if you don't land it right away, your, your life sucks. Or, right. you know. Yeah. Right. But really, it's more like baseball. And everyone's a free agent <laughs> and anyone could go anywhere at any point. But. Yeah, I think... You know, if I, I had sort of two hot topics that I wanted to bring up in this podcast. Cool. So the first one was this issue of establishing independence and really trying to emphasize that I did that poorly and that I really encourage people to work harder at establishing independence. And the second one is this misconception about the different types of jobs. So since you brought that up, I think it would be, I could sort of segue yeah. into... That'd be great. This topic. So this would be fun to engage you in because you're sort of at the other end of the spectrum. So the the idea or the concept that I want to discuss is the idea that research jobs are better than teaching jobs. So what I mean by that is, is that the top tier, most prestigious jobs that we're all sort of supposed to be drooling over when we are in graduate school or getting a postdoc are these um, jobs like you have at Vanderbilt. So do you want to just describe what I mean by that? What does your job look like? Right. So you mean a a job where it's 50% research, 50% teaching, you um, teaching loads are somewhat light, one to two classes a semester. Yeah. Yeah. And the real emphasis is put on research and then getting grant money and then getting to do all these sexy things like traveling to conferences and networking. Right, right. And sort of emulating what you saw when you were getting your PhD. So it does make sense that that appears to be the goal when you're in graduate school because you're getting your PhD at one of these institutions. Right. So... What I'm, what, what I, what is at the other end of the spectrum are some of the types of positions that I have held, which are primarily teaching focused. So at Manchester, for example, you could get tenure with no publications. So as long as you exhibit what they call scholarly activity, which could be taking some undergrads to an undergraduate conference, for example, you could get tenure that way. And there are many, many jobs that look like that. Right. And those are thought of as sort of the lesser jobs. And I know that graduate students who end up going for those jobs or wanting those jobs or being slotted for those jobs in many ways are meant to feel like they're failures. 
well, I don't know if they're meant to feel, but I think some people do feel like, well, this is an alternative career path because it's not what my mentor did. Right. And if it's this like apprenticeship system, like, right. like it is like the training kind of is, it's hard to imagine, wait a second, I've learned how to do what my mentor does. Ideally that that's what you walk away with, but then I'm not going to do that. Exactly. Right. Well, I, I mean, I do think though that the mentor benefits from you having a research career Sure. So they benefit and the program benefits from cranking out people who can get those kinds of jobs or who go who want those kinds of jobs. Right. right. So I do think that you are you are meant to feel like you're a failure in many circumstances. We're going to disagree about this. That's fine. <laughs> right. I well, I I don't think anyone's trying to make you feel bad. I, yeah, I'm not I, saying there's bad these are right. bad people, but you are part of a system. Sure that is training you for research positions. You right. are. I mean, a PhD is a research degree. Right. Well, to be an independent research scientist, and so let's say you, you're, we'd love you to be the world's greatest independent research scientist in psychology and neuroscience. Um, and so you, the, the catch there is that you would probably end up at one of the world's great schools, if that were the case. Right. Because that's where scientists tend to find jobs. Right. Yeah, so. absolutely. And um, I think that, you know, another piece of this is that some people will say, well, my graduate program didn't get me teaching experience. And my response to that is, well, it wasn't, they weren't supposed to because right. a PhD is a research degree. So I'm in no way um, trying to mischaracterize the system. But I think that what I'm trying to say is that many people end up with teaching jobs because there are lots of teaching jobs right. in the country. And I think that there needs to be a better conversation about those types of careers. So by better conversation, I guess what I mean is that these are great jobs right. and that they're incredibly fulfilling lives and that you can continue your research program there and that you can have real impact on both the field and on people in the classroom. Right. Well, it's interesting too because most, um, most cognitive psychology or almost all psychology you could do perfectly well at a, with undergraduates um, running undergraduates. I mean, there's just a lot of science you can do with the behavioral data that you could get, uh, even if your startup is one computer and a, and a joystick, right, or something. Right, yeah. We talked about this in the book as well, about how to run a lab with, a, with undergrads, and I think that there is real opportunity for people at these positions as well. Right. And I guess, um, I don't know. How do you think, uh, what do you, how do you think people could benefit from having this conversation? Right. Well, I think some of it's to know what the deal is, right? So, my memory is the deal, right? What are you being compensated for? Mm -hmm. And at a small liberal arts school, your teaching load is something like four a semester. Mm -hmm. uh, so eight classes a year instead of what is like two mm -hmm. at, a, at a place where they really want you to mostly do research. But, um, but you still get to schedule when your classes are and when you have office hours. You still have control over these aspects of things for the most part, I assume. Um, there's probably more. I imagine there's more service work, but I don't know if that's true because I guess I haven't held such a job to know relatively. But I, my impression was that you spent a lot more time with students, <laughs> like yeah. going to coffee I don't know that that was actually a thing but it just <laughs> felt like there was a lot of hanging out but uh, I don't think there was 
people that, I mean, there are some professors who spend a lot of time hanging out with students. I, in order to be productive with my research, I had to have pretty strict boundaries. So I have some students who would joke about me kicking them out of my office when we weren't talking about something that was productive for, you know, class or research. But I, I think that one of the things that I've noticed in terms of your career versus my career is that I have a large number of previous and current students who I care a lot about. And that has built my own community in that way. And that has been really, really fulfilling when, you know, I have a student who scored in 100th percentile on her MCATs and I can't explain how happy I was for her. Or when a student gets into the PhD program that they wanted to get into, I can't even really explain how delighted that makes me. And so I think I, and and I have lots of these stories, right? So I think that there is this level of life quality that you get when you spend a lot of time invested in undergraduate education. And I think that knowing that now, having done it for almost 10 years, makes me annoyed that there is this hierarchy. Do you right. know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. Well, and you know, as we've discussed, I think it's they it's not so much hierarchical as just like totally different realms of jobs. Right. Um and uh uh I think there's you know, something that would be an interesting topic in the future for another podcast is exactly how things break down with behavioral research versus neuroscience. And I'm one mm-hmm. of, one of the guesses, right. Is that, uh, more of the behavioral research is done at places at little places like this, right. It's at, at small liberal arts and teaching schools where you have undergrads who need to do work. Right. And we, we have all these scientists we're generating who, can't all have a $3 million MRI. I have a magnet like, you know, next to their office. So there does seem to be a real opportunity for like beautiful behavioral work to be done in laboratories and places like this. Right. And I think there's, I mean, there's opportunities for high quality collaborations. There are you know, there are lots of ways in which I think that if people were more aware of what was going on in these different positions, I think that everybody could potentially benefit. You know, I want to, I think I want to circle back a little bit to what we, what I was saying earlier about, about the idea that you're a failure if you go to one of these jobs, because I suppose I worry that I'm coming across as though anyone made me feel like a failure and they did not. So Anybody that I worked with or advised me or mentored me has only ever been really encouraging. And in fact, I think that so encouraging to a fault because I think I felt so um, nurtured and supported that I didn't I didn't become independent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So um, I don't mean I don't mean that I'm bringing I want to raise this issue on this episode because, somebody did this to me, I I think it's because... So it's like implicit in the system, right? That that you, (laughs) you know, the the goal of training for five years of graduate school is to be able to do what your mentor can do. Right. And then you get a job that's not what your mentor does. Right. And the the odds of that are very high. We've talked about the statistics in our book of the types of jobs that there are out there. Right. And you have a much higher chance of getting a teaching job than you do of getting a research job. And so we ought to talk about these jobs and about how to get them and how to maximize being there and get sort of uh, folks who are in your position on board with how you can collaborate with people at these institutions and, you know, people at teaching institutions get on board with how they can develop relationships with folks like you. Right, right. Well, and how we can better train our students who want to go that, explicitly want to go in the direction of teaching at a small liberal arts school. I mean, I've learned largely through talking to you and 
rusty and other people right that about what is needed at a place like that that uh i now kind of give different advice if people want to go into a teaching direction as opposed to saying well okay well we'll definitely get you a good ta assignment remember to lecture once <laughs> right it's just not the same as being an instructor of record somewhere Right. Yeah. That at that talk that I gave at Vanderbilt about how to get a job at a liberal arts school, some of the most engaged members of the audience were certainly faculty members. And some of the people who spoke with me afterwards were faculty members essentially saying, I'm so glad that I have this information so that I can better advise my graduate students. So, you know, my point here is essentially to break down these barriers and try to open up a conversation about how you can have a rewarding career either way right. and that there are different types of careers and that they're both available to you and to better understand what's out there. Right. Right. I wanted to circle back to your first point, which was about independence. Okay. And, uh, how do you think you do that? So you're a grad student or postdoc, like, uh, do you just like walk around screaming? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm independent. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> How do you do? Uh, what do you think? Because I, I, I have some, I, I know what I try to do, uh, but I've also had a former postdoc tell tell me that they thought I didn't care about them initially. Because <laughs> you were so hands off right, trying to let them right. be independent. Because I've tried to give people space and say like, you know, this looks great. Send me the manuscript and just like send me the package when it's done. Right. Um. I think that part of the issue for me was that I was a fantastic undergrad. And so I knew how to do that. I knew how to memorize facts. I knew how to ace exams. I knew how to take a syllabus and cross everything out as I did it. And I understood that if I did what was on the syllabus, I was going to get an A. It was a very one-in, one-out kind right. of setup. A well-defined problem, yes, as right. people say. And... Uh, graduate school is nothing like that. And yeah. that's frustrating because you got into graduate school because you did so well during undergrad, but now you got to do something differently. And what you need to do differently are things from, you know, time management issues to asking questions to putting yourself out there and trying things and fixing things that break. And I didn't have time management issues. I was in the lab all the time. But I don't think I was naturally inquisitive enough. I don't think that I really wanted to know exactly how the program was run, exactly how to scientifically write a paper, exactly why this ANOVA and not that ANOVA. I really think that I was trying to absorb information more than I was trying to ask questions. And... That is, that's not a scientist. A scientist <laughs> asks questions, you know? Right. Um, and, and I think that if I had been more willing to kind of jump in there and figure out how things worked, and I'm talking about how did the eye tracker work? How does the program work? How, if something goes down in the lab, open up the manual and fix it myself? I think that, you know, so getting your hands dirty, so to speak, would be though would be sort of what I realized that I did not do. And you have to do, right? That's what I had to do when I set up my own right, lab. And right. I was thinking, why didn't I figure this out right. during graduate school? Right. Well, it is true that sometimes in graduate school, you just don't have the opportunity. There's not new equipment that's purchased. You walk into a, a situation that, you, that other people have worked hard to get all the mm -hmm. equipment up and running, and it's easy just to run with that. But, um, yeah, I... The independence thing is hard because it's, it's, uh, uh, the nice thing that for in graduate school and as a postdoc is that you can, uh, do trial runs. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if you have an idea, program it up, uh, pilot yourself and, and the other person in the office and look at the data and think about it and, you know, just do dry runs of let's pretend my mentor just had a heart attack today uh, and I don't have someone to ask 
what do I think is the best idea I have right now? And, and let's, and let me try it. Let me see what happens. Right. Right. You know, uh, I interviewed Yu Hong for one of the chapters in our book and she yeah. was, Yu Hong Zhang at, at, yes, at Minnesota. Minnesota. Uh-huh. And she spoke so elegantly about that issue. So rather than reiterate her points, I want to say that Another thing that happened during graduate school that I think most people want to happen but actually isn't ideal is that all my projects worked out. So all the projects that I worked on worked beautifully and turned into strong publications. And that also made me feel like things were just working out and I didn't need to ask a lot of questions or dig deeper and try to problem solve. And so I know that there are graduate students who get frustrated, of course, when things don't work well or a project doesn't appear to be publishable or the data doesn't make sense. But those are fantastic opportunities to dig deeper and figure out what's going on. Right. And I was, I had the dumb luck of working with some fantastic people who were working on things that was going really well at the time. And I think that that ended up actually not pushing me right to be more independent sure now you're not saying like a first year graduate student needs to demand to run experiments of their own design <laughs> no no what i am saying is that a first year graduate student ought to be in their free time looking at the code and yeah. trying to program something in their free time I think that they need to be trying to come up with questions and ideas that they float during lab meeting. I think you need to, or during your coursework, I think you need to not, don't be dismayed when you have a bad idea, you know? I think I also, if you're a strong undergrad, you're used to people saying what your papers are good and your questions are smart. And I think there were a couple of times where I posed a question and was told, like, no, that's already been done or, you know, explained why that's not a good question. And I think that really made me kind of not so anxious to try that again. Right. And, and again, nobody said that in a negative way. It was an incredibly strong environment to be, a good environment to be in. But I think that my personality had been that I, had, that I was a really good undergrad and I didn't make this shift very well. Right. Well, that's... It's a difficult shift for many people because because you or Yu Hong are exactly right. It is a completely different set of skills. We select based on A, B, C, and D, and then we need you to do X, Y, and Z when you get here. So it, it, it is something of a switcheroo. Yeah, I think I would also like to maybe end that by also adding, though, that that doesn't mean that all is lost, right? Sure. So I think that... My career path, although very winded, has worked out pretty well for me. I think I'm very happy with my career. And I have met really great people. I have really fallen into working with some fantastic students and had some great learning opportunities. And I think... As always, when you do struggle and overcome it, it ends up being a fantastic thing. So my struggle ended up being different and being delayed because it was after grad school. But I think by all measures, it ended up being a fantastic thing. Sure. Congratulations. Thanks. So this is the phase where we find out some stuff about Ashley. Since (laughs) you did the uh, Let's Embarrass Jeff part. (laughs) Embarrassed. Uh, what's uh, what's something our listeners would be surprised to learn about Ashley? Hmm. A surprise? I don't know about surprised. I really love books. Yeah. I'm a big book dork. I listen to podcasts about that are by authors, for example, or about the publishing industry. So non-academic right. books and publishing. So do you, and so you're listening to podcasts and reading books. You, you're reading those books on your phone or on a tablet or something? <laughs> or? I get where you're going with this. No, I like to hold a book. I like the way it feels in my hands. Uh-huh. The smell. Do you like the smell? <laughs> you're, I... Jeff is completely mocking me right I'm not. now. I love books too. Um, 
I love bookstores. Nashville has a bookstore called Parnassus that is owned, co-owned by the author Ann Patchett, and it is my happy place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hope your t-shirt's coming in the mail now or something. Right, right. I hope Ann's going to come over and hang out with me now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, good reading. Yeah, that is, that's a good one. I I have one that... Ashley prefers to drink coffee with two hands <laughs> cupped around the bowl-like cup. Look, here's the thing. I feel like coffee drinking is an experience. Yeah. You like to pour nasty chemicals into your creamer. coffee. It's known as creamer in the business. And you can no longer taste the coffee. Right. And I just think that I'm going to have some black coffee I'm going to cup it in my hands. Right. And I'm going to enjoy the time that I spend. (laughs) (laughs) You don't view it as a caffeine vector to be shot into your body as fast as possible. I think it's more of a ritual. Yeah. I mean, I want it in the morning to help me wake up, but I'm not sure that I actually consume enough for it to truly be caffeine driven (laughs) as because you will drink an entire pot of coffee. Right. When I when I leave you alone to do that. Right. But it's a ritual that helps get my day started. Yeah. That's great. Do you like puppies and kitties? <laughs> I love puppies and kitties. <laughs> um, we have a really great animal shelter here in Williamson County in Tennessee. And we go there a lot and play with the puppies and the kitties. And my dream would be to have a retirement home for senior dogs and, I guess, senior cats. So, If your kids make you. Yeah, yeah. since my kids like the cats so much, that's yeah. fine. I like cats. They're fine. Yeah, it's yeah. cool as dogs, but... Yeah. So someday when I'm old and gray and you are dead and gone because you're so much older than me... <laughs> I will be running a retirement home for dogs. So like six months. Yeah. Six to, six to nine and months. By the time this podcast hits <laughs> the airways. <laughs> yeah. You could play it at, at my funeral. That'll be, that would be weird. That would be odd. You just took this too far, Woodman. Yeah. Okay. Well then, then we should wrap this up. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. That was uh, informative, interesting, and inspirational all at the same time. It was fun chatting with you. All right. Well, we look forward to talking to you again on Brain Bios.